You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Welcome to Line Noise. Today we have an interview that I did live at the Curtis Audiophile Cafe in Barcelona this October. Uh, in which I spoke for about an hour to Steve Goodman, a.k.a. Code9, an electronic music artist, DJ, uh, and of course the founder of the excellent Hyperdub label. We spoke about the concept behind his new album, Astro Darian, Scottish independence, philosophy, Hyperdub, Rosalia, uh, and Burial. Thank you very much to Lapsus for organising the event, uh, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Um... I've been told to tell you all to come further forward, although you've all sort of come further forward, which is uh, which is nice. Um, welcome, everyone, uh, to uh, Curtis Audiophile Cafe uh, for the Liz Truss Memorial event. She's not dead, she's just dead shit. Um, sorry. Uh, for this lapsus event, um, I won't be trying any more jokes. Because uh, we have a very special guest, Steve Goodman, better known as Code9, uh, electronic music artist, DJ, uh, and founder of the excellent Hyperdub label. Um, Code9 has released four albums to date, uh, two with the Space Ape, two solo, most recently Escapology. Uh, and there is a new album EP? Album? EP? Album. Uh, called Astro Darian, which is coming in November. Uh, he plays live tomorrow at the Keisha Forum, and uh, I don't need to tell you how good that is going to be. Um, for me, one of the things I really love about Code Nine, um, he's an artist who's been right at the front of developments in electronic music for the last two decades, um, and he's very thoughtful. This is something we, we were just talking about. Um, when you look into his work, it's brilliant musically, but there's lots of really fascinating ideas as well. Um, and he's a brilliant DJ too. Um, and Hyperdub is one of those reference labels, um, home to incredible artists, and recently home to lots of people from different countries. Well, different countries. Countries where... I guess traditionally, you wouldn't necessarily expect to find um, lots of electronic music. Again, something we're going to be talking about. Um, the plan is we're going to talk for a bit, and then if you have any questions, uh, this is very much your opportunity. So get thinking if there's anything you want to ask. Um, but otherwise, we'll get started. Um, and I want to start... If I may, I mentioned um, there's a new album, Astro Darian, um, which is coming in November, and Escapology was released very recently, fairly recently. Uh, could you tell us um, about Astro Darian and how it relates to Escapology? This might take 45 minutes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Well, um, where to begin with this? Thanks for that intro, by the way. Very kind. Um, Darien is an area of Panama. And in the, and in the late 17th century, Scotland tried to colonize this area of Panama. And it was a complete disaster. Bankrupted the country and uh, was sabotaged by the English, was sabotaged by the Spanish. And it, it led, it was one of the factors that led to Scotland and England getting married or enter into the, the, the formation of the UK. Um, and Astro Darien, on the other hand, is an orbital space habitat which is somewhere between the Earth and the Moon. And the idea for Astro Darien came about through the sheer frustration of living in a country governed by Muppets. Um, so with the Scottish referendum, I live in London, but 
seeing this at a distance and seeing it in British media, um, living living through the Scottish independence referendum and the kind of weight of inertia in British media towards unionism and then Brexit, just this growing frustration. And, and so I was interested in, as a kind of science fiction project, creating this, imagining this uh, escape route where there'd be, a, in some scenario, there's a kind of catastrophic series of events that um, the British Isles encounter and there's a mass exodus to an orbital space habitat. And the thing that triggered this, apart from what I've just said, was finding out there was an actual space race going on in the north of Scotland to build spaceports, to launch satellites. So in my slightly deranged head, I was like, well, this isn't for satellites. This is how we're going to escape being, you know, the crazy people that, that run the British government um, who are really displaying their full glory just now. Um, so Astro so, so Astro Darren is a video game. It's framed as a video game in which you play escaping the UK. And obviously if it doesn't work, you can play it again and you can keep playing it again. And um, so in that sense, it's not futuristic. It's kind of a documentary about what's going on right now where constant attempts to have referendums, constant attempts to escape. Um, on one level, what seems to be the final, the final chapter of the British Empire, like breaking the UK into its constituent countries, seems like what needs to happen to end this several hundred year um, phase of history. Um, so it's framed as a video game. What it actually is, the al the album that's coming out next month is a twenty six minute audio essay. You know, so it's it's um, it's a story narrated by Scottish text-to-speech voices, or sc Scottish AI voices, um, which tells a, which kind of spans this whole history of the the Darien scheme disaster. Scotland's often un unknown role in, in the British Empire and slavery and colonialism and right up to movement of Scottish independence. Um, so kind of in the loosest possible sense, it tells that story through, through the mind of a Panamanian games programmer. Um, and she, she works for a company called Transstar North, I suppose, which is a bit of a play. I found out that Grand Theft Auto is made um, was made by a Scottish video game company called Rockstar North, and I always thought that was kind of weird that like a Scottish games company would be simulating Ameri inner city life in America. So I thought, what would what would this Scottish games company do if they were um, making a video game about escaping the UK? Um, so that's what Astrodarian is. And Escapology, which came out in the summer, is like an instrumental, slightly clubbier version of that soundscape world. Um, yeah. <laughs> How do you go about making an album that references so many things and functions on so many different levels. Does it start with the idea or does it start with some music or something else? Well, th this is a particularly weird project because um, it's evolved so slowly. Just before the pandemic, I was asked to do a performance at GRM in Paris on this sound system called the Acousmonium, which is a 50-speaker sound system designed by um, music concrete composer Francois Bayo in the 70s. And so I was trying to de design some sound that, that would work on a 50-speaker system, like very different for me, like more, much more detailed and sound that would like fly around the room like an insect. 
And I also thought, well, it's, it's GRM, it's music concrete, so let me do something a bit different from what is going to be going on there. So I thought, let's do something with spoken word in it and not just instrumental. And like I said, this story had been building up in my head through the frustrations of the last 10 or so years politically. Um, and then it got, so I was supposed to do that in March 2020. It got cancelled because of the pandemic. Um, I during the pandemic, I I was reading about Scotland's role in slavery, which is a kind of un really a under discussed. A lot of Scots always go, oh, it was the English, it, it was Bristol, it was London, it was Liverpool, and so on. So I, I was kind of reading about that. I also found out about these spaceports these proposed spaceports in the north of Scotland. And I went on a road trip right along the north coast of Scotland to, to see these empty moorlands where they were going to be building these rocket launch sites. Um, did lots of filming. And then at the end of the pandemic, like um, June 21, um, there's a club in... South London called Corsica Studios, where we'd been doing nights from 2017 to 2020, where we, it's the club's got two rooms and we had been doing these nights where we transformed the main dance floor of room one into a, a, an installation. We showed films, we did sound installations, audiovisual installations, and we had a party in a small room. And we did 36 of those, they were called Zero. Um, anyway, at the uh, June 21, um, I was asked by Corsica Studios if I had any installations because they were able to open up as a gallery but not yet as a club. And so I used that as an excuse to bring together all this video footage that I had made to like develop this story a bit more and ask some friends to do some animation using game software to kind of visualize this... Um, orbital space colony, space habitat. Um, so it, and then, so I did that, it was on for two weeks, it was like three screens and blah, blah, blah. Um, then at the, at the end of <clears throat> October 2021, finally I did this thing in Paris. I did a playback of the piece in Paris. So basically the short answer to your question is it, it just builds up slowly and I was trying to make some work that you could had different entry points you could take it at surface value but because of my background I suppose if you're interested in digging deeper it's got layers more layers than you could ever dream of um, if you're interested in going that deep into it it might sound like an offhand comment but but it's not um do you ever feel like you just want to make something dance floor friendly that you know that you can make in in, in a couple of hours? Um, I, I do try to do that occasionally. I, do, I mean, my DJ set. I mean, that's what I DJ in a way. You know that I get I get that out of my system in my DJ sets. I think. These days I'm playing a bit more of my own music in my DJ sets because maybe I am finally feel like I'm making some bangers that I actually want to play because I think for most of my DJ career I haven't wanted to play my own music. So I think only recently um, am I getting to that point where these, these worlds are colliding or converging. We talked a bit about this before. Um, but um, I want to ask about Scottish independence, which is obviously something that's been um, very much in the news here and in the UK. How do you feel about it? Well, I live in London, so I can't vote for it. If I'd lived in Scotland, I would vote for it. Um, I don't know if it would go well, but I think it's time to take responsibility for things going well or not well. Um, and moving on from 
being in a position where you don't have full control of what you're doing and also in a position where you're constantly blaming London for what's not going right. Um, I think it's well past the point of being able to trust either the left or the right in London to run Scotland. It's well past that point as far as I'm concerned. And the last 10 years has just made that clear. And that's someone who's not particularly nationalistic or patriotic at all. You know, I was happy to leave Scotland and live in London um, for music reasons mostly. Um, but the last 10 or so years has, has changed the way I th think about that. And what's going on in British politics just now just like amplifies that, that you know. Also, you know, to be honest, the most sane politician, like one of the few politi politicians you could literally, literally trust in the UK is Nicola Sturgeon. She's certainly not perfect, but at least she's not a lying piece of shit like, like so many uh, of British politicians. I mean, world, world, words fail me when talking about these things. Yeah, it's quite a day to be uh, talking about that. Mo moving away from politics, you have a PhD in philosophy, correct? Do you think that affects your music? And one of the reasons I want to ask that is because your 2015 album, Nothing, was about, and speech marks, nothing. And that almost feels like a philosophical point. Like, how can a record be about nothing? And if it's about nothing, then doesn't that make it about something? It was definitely about something. Um, I think it really was about a, a sense of a void, which was created by two very close friends dying in 2014, the Space Ape, who I made my first two albums with, and DJ Rashad. Um, so that's how it started, but you know, as happens with me, it became a massive kind of convoluted project with many layers about um, quantum physics and voids. And um, I developed with a collaborator of mine, Lawrence Leck, who's a simulation artist. Is when I was performing this album, um, he he basically built a virtual, again using game software, a virtual fully automated luxury hotel that we called the Notel, um, which was, um, so we developed a whole philosophy around this idea of nothing, which related to some of the, um, some of the paradoxes to, the idea of automation and capitalism and luxury. Um, so it was a it was a fully automated hotel that was everything that the elite would want from a luxury establishment, except there was no humans. So and it's staffed by drones, and so it was a situation where the drones have suddenly got all this time in their hands. And what do the drones do when they they're not subordinated to to humans anymore so it it spiraled into something very philosophical that was kind of a, a piss take of this set of ideas around what you could call right-wing accelerationism um so it was, it was a piss take of of some of these ideas of uh luxury and what the rich want which is security and privacy they wanted to create a security void around themselves where the um, uh, other humans don't interfere with their their lives and um, so it's just kind of extrapolating that to a, a point of parody I suppose um, but all of my albums somehow have got 
themes or stories, like you said. I, I suppose I'm quite influenced by a friend of mine's book from the late 90s, Kojo Eshin, called More Brilliant Than the Sun, where he talks about, um, particularly in relation to Afrofuturist musics, where he talks about this idea of sonic fiction, most epitomized by like Drexia or Underground Resistance, which is where, you know, using sound to create science fictional worlds, um, alternate realities or es escape, um, not escapist realities, but um, to reimagine the present differently. Um, so I suppose a lot of these themes that come along with a lot of my albums, I suppose variations of this idea of sonic fiction. And the last track on that album, Nothing Lasts Forever, um, was it closes the album with a nine minute silence. Um, why was that? And did you expect people to actually sit there and listen to the nine minute silence? Or was it more like an idea that it was just important to be there? I mean, it's obviously it's partly a joke. Um, it's partly a joke and partly like just, you know, I was slightly in mourning mode for my friends. So, um, so it was a, it was a combination of mourning and, um, again, just playing with these, with this fascinating world of zeros and nothings and voids, which I got completely engrossed by in that period, you know, it starts something simple and then you're like, you go down the, the rabbit hole of, like I said, quantum physics and, um, the history of zero in mathematics and all of these kind of um, wormholes. You have worked in academia at the University of East London, I believe. Do you still do that? When you were doing that, in that case, was that a strange thing to straddle, like the, the, the club music you love and were making and were releasing with the quite a dry academic world. Um, well, after I finished studying, I wanted to escape academia because I'd been in it for about 10 years. And that's when I started to hype it up as a web magazine, like three years before it became a label. And then for various reasons, I ended up teaching. And this is all the period when dubstep is just take, getting momentum and blowing up. So I was going to DJ on Pirate Radio on Rinse FM straight after teaching classes, which is kind of weird, to be honest. You know, I was teaching in East London. I was doing Pirate Radio in East London. And there was a certain point where some of my students recognized my voice and then things started to unravel where they were like bringing CDRs to class and so on. Um, but for a good 10 years, I was like doing, had these two lives and it was great, very tiring. Um, I did, you know, through this period, I was writing Sonic Warfare, my book as well. So I think the book was a way of bringing these two sides together um, and keeping keeping myself sane, understanding this slightly schizophrenic existence. Um, but, you know, teaching in East London, the University of East London, it wasn't that dry, you know. Everyone, all the kids I'm teaching are into similar music that I was involved in. And I was teaching courses I wanted to teach in sound design and music and pop, popular music and politics and things like that. So somehow it all loosely converged together. Although it's only since I stopped teaching about seven years ago that I'm able to really work out how it all works together. And I think the first project where it, it is all converging is this Astrodarian project. 
I wanted to ask about the book, Sonic Warfare, Sound Effect and the Ecology of Fear. Briefly, what, what is it about? If, if it is possible to explain that briefly. Um, I, I suppose it's, um, you know, when we think about sound and music, usually we're thinking about how how it makes us, how it gives us pleasure and everything that's positive about it and music is something that's enjoyable. So in a way, it's really just thinking about the dark side of sound and music. And beyond that, it's just thinking about how um, sound in particular and vibration changes the way we feel in a, in a subconscious way that, that operates underneath what we think or it changes the way we think subliminally. So that's the, that's the short version. So I find this interesting because one of my favorite hyperdub albums, um, which is Brute, um, Fatima Al-Qadiri's second album for hyperdub, explored, I believe, similar themes to your book. I mean, I, I haven't read the book, I'm sorry, but similar kind of themes that always interested me like did you speak to Fatima about it or did it you sort of spontaneously come to uh similar conclusions or similar spaces I mean Fatima is someone who's always got concepts behind her music and I think that's how we converged in the first place um with all her albums as a concept and you know, for some people, some people are very phobic of concept albums or music that's more than just a surface but has some stuff going on behind it. But I always like Fatima's music because, again, it was multi-layered and you could appreciate it at face value or you can go deeper on it. So um, that album in particular is about police brutality in the US. Um but musically, it I don't musically it's not really musically it's like all her stuff is quite genteel and quite beautiful. Um, so I didn't really, you know, these themes that were I was interested in, but it didn't strike me as something. You know, it's related to themes in my book, but not liter not quite in the same way that I was meaning it, which is where like a very intense sound literally impacts you physiologically that's more what my book is about rather than um it's more literally about that rather than having that loosely as a theme if you uh, if you know what i mean i want to ask about hyperdub you're wearing a very nice hyperdub t-shirt uh, are these available for sale? <laughs> They've sold out. Um, what is it like running a label, in an indie label in 2022? Um, we hear a lot about there's problems getting records manufactured, streaming doesn't pay a lot. It sounds to me very difficult, but Hyperdub at the same time still seems to be doing very well, as far, far as, I, as, a, as I can tell. What's it like running Hyperdub? now well i mean we're as a label we're 20 years old in 2024 um i only started the label to release my own music so it's gone completely out of control to be honest and nobody told me that running a label was like being a psychotherapist uh, i wouldn't have signed up for that at all I mean, nobody told me that teaching was like being a psychotherapist either. Um, it's it's not ideal times for running a label. Um, I hate to think what it would be like if we didn't have an artist like Burial, because that makes it a different kind of ball game. It means I can take a few more risks, I suppose. Um, it's not easy to be try and be a, mus a musician and run a label either. Um, they're often in direct conflict, like different parts of your brain when you're trying to engage with your own music and trying to engage with other people's music. That doesn't always sit very easily. Um, 
And obviously the music industry is in transition. So um, with moving towards streaming and, and, and so on. So everything is, it's, it's not easy, but we have a small team and really what I do for HyperDub is A&R and pay the bills. So I'm glad that we have other people helping out because it's, uh, it's a lot of running a label I couldn't do or wouldn't want to do because it would literally drive me insane. Um, so we have a small team, like a label manager and someone doing distribution, someone doing publishing. Um, I mean, I have so little interest in the music industry as a, as, as a rule generally, but I find myself like thrown into it because I couldn't be bothered trying to get my music signed to anyone else's labels anymore. So just because of that, now I'm like 20 years down the road in the middle of the industry one way or another. So I've got mixed feelings is the answer to that question. I should say, I think the Iconica IP was, EP was just announced today. Um, there's an excellent EP coming from Iconica in November. There's there's a new EP from Scratcher and Lady Likes out soon, Iconica. Um, Astrodarium, which is actually on a sub-label called Flatlines, which is specifically for audio essays and sonic fiction. Um well, there's also a release tomorrow, which I probably shouldn't mention, but I've seen it mentioned on Twitter today. So there's a burial release out tomorrow. I might as well say that. <laughs> okay, I want to I want to ask a burial question, if I may, um, which is, what is it like working with someone whose every move is so intensely studied? An artist who, in the UK, there was actual tabloid campaigns to find out who on earth he was, and who literally, it seems, who's one of the most acclaimed electronic music producers, and everyone wants to know more about him. Is it is it slightly strange in a way that this I'm, I'm guessing this bloke who you know you just know as a producer is is so incredibly fated is so and. Is seen as so iconic. Um, it, well, in a way, he's, he's really the best artist to work with that I've ever encountered. He's so low key. Like the 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 gulf between what he's like as a person and the the shitstorm around him is is so vast. It's hard to even comprehend that someone who's so shy, so low key, so normal so not interested in having anything to do with the music industry in the slightest, just leads his life, in a way is the perfect artist to work with because it just, you know, there's there's none of the like crazed ego that you have with artists who are quite rightly trying to make it in the industry and are hustling and, and you know, it's difficult in the music industry to be an artist. So you have to you know, your ego gets bruised all the time, you have to hustle and, you know, so it's not, I don't have to deal with any of that bullshit with him at all. So in a way it's, it's a perfect situation of like, um, someone who's, like I said, so low key. I'm maybe more relaxed about the, the shit storm than I used to be because it really used to get under my skin. Um, it still gets under my skin a bit, but I, you know, I try to ignore it and mute, mute the the outside world. And um, but I understand it because you know I have obviously have a very close relationship with his music, um, and some of my fondest memories of running a label are living with his music when just me and his music in the period when I'm trying to work out which tracks to put out because it's very emotional, comforting, um, powerful music. Otherwise it wouldn't have blown up like that. And to, to have that period where you're just living with it and working out what you like and what you don't like and 
giving him feedback is has been the best part of running the label because um as a dj who travels and doesn't sleep as much as they could do his music is amazing for like dealing being waking up in the morning going through airports not having slept feeling slightly serotonin deprived and just feeling completely depleted and um, half human you know his music is like a drug for these kind of states um, so really an ideal artist to work with in many ways on the subject of which i promise there won't be uh, too many on on this but we're we're in catalonia where rosalia is probably the biggest artist going at the moment um, on her recent album, she interpolated a burial song. Um, and what would, maybe this isn't something you deal with in the label, but I'm quite interested in what your experience was like with, you know, Sony music coming in for a big priority release, one of, one of their artists. Was it, was it kind of quite easy? What was it like? Um, luckily I didn't deal with any of that. I had someone deal with it. I mean, I, I'm a fan Rosalia and I love that track and I've done my own edit of it that I play in my sets um, so it was a nice full circle phenomena but I could not deal with Sony in any way at all so so um, someone else has dealt with that and it's um, it all seems to have worked out fine like he's got writer credits I mean they've been it seems like she's been really good about it um, I mean, obviously, there's loads of pop stars where you would just like throw up, you'd just feel nauseous if something like this happened. But she's not one of those. That's, you know, I think it's a great, um, it's great the way it's worked out and that it happened. I have a theory that when Rosalia plays London, Beryl should come along and play tambourine to that song. It's not going to happen. Well, I mentioned earlier, one of the things I love about Hyperdub was it's a very global label. And it was, I think, one of the first labels that introduced me to a lot of electronic music from South Africa, for example. Um, was it a conscious decision to get out of London and, and the UK and, and find things from other places? Or did it just sort of happen organically? Um. <clears throat> It really just happens organically, but I think it, it coincided with the frustration that London wasn't quite the epicent, the musical epicenter that it once was, um, and so subconsciously my attention just started to drift, world, you know, all over the place, still listening to music from elsewhere. Um, it definitely happened organically with the South African music because. We'd been working with these artists, LV, um, since about 2005 or six. One of the members of LV, of LV was half South African, and they're also now known as OK Sharp. But the, at the time, they were making dubstep and very reggae-influenced dubstep. Um, by the time it got to there, I can't remember when it was, maybe five or so years later, their album Animal Prints. You know, th that whole album was a collaboration with South, Afri South African vocalists. And then I went to play in South Africa around about 2010 or 11 with, or 12 with, with Scratcher, DVA, and was kind of blown away by how different their relationship with house music was from everywhere I'd ever been. And, you know, I, I like House and Techno, but I'm not a big, huge fan. But it felt very different. People danced to it much better than they did in where I'm from, at least. And it just seemed to mean something very different there. And I came back with loads of CDs of Cueto. And OK Sharp introduced me to what was then early GOM music and it's about 2013 or so on and and when I heard GOM 
it reminded me of early dubstep more than anything because it was so minimal and dark and so droney and sub bass driven and so it immediately appealed to me but you know I, I got bored of dubstep in about 2009 because it had become rhythmically so tedious and so it also reminded me of you know I there was a scene in the UK UK funky around about 2008 9 10 and when I went to South Africa, I realized that the, there was some really strong connection between those kind of rhythms that were really coming through the African community in London. And um, what I was hearing is in the, the various versions of, of South African house music, various mutations of South African house music. Um, and I think, you know, various producers we work with, like Scratcha and Kuli G and Iconica, um, who were you know came through this UK funky scene, also were listening to um, African dance music more and more over the last ten years. So you know the reference points for British dance music in the last thirty years have always been like taking music from the Caribbean and from North America and making their own versions of it, speeding it up and so on with Garage with Jungle being like speeded up breakbeats and um and so on um so i think around you know maybe 2010 onwards i think generally this shifted britain's ears sh shifted to to listening to um african dance music much more and, and i think you can see the influence of that in what's popular in 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 london these days and and i suppose that just reflects in the artists that we work with and what their influences are and so it starts to come through on the label as well is there a country that is making incredible electronic music at the moment that we might not know of that we should look out for i've no idea I mean, I don't know where to begin that question. All I can say really is that my musical radar is no longer just dominated by Britain and America and the Caribbean, I suppose. Um, until until COVID, there was really amazing music coming out, electronic music coming out of Shanghai, out of China. But I really think their COVID plan is is really fucking that up because everyone, a lot of people I know are leaving um, because of their zero COVID um, policy. Um, there's obviously lots of amazing dance music coming out of Af different African countries. Um, Uganda, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa. Um, I mean, I, well, I, where do you begin with a question like that? Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> you were. I want to ask about labels in a way because most musicians hate labels and that is something um, I can totally understand. At the same time, I think labels are quite useful for talking about music. I mean, you referenced dubstep and UK funky and people know what you're talking about. Post-dubstep was a term often used for music that was that was coming out on hyperdub um and uk bass as well i wonder how you feel about those labels and is there a way in which you can talk about the music that hyperdub releases is there one like blanket kind of way i mean i i've Occupy both. I, I still occupy both sides of this 
I don't know if you want to call it a debate. You know, I'm an artist who doesn't like to be pigeonholed, finds it restrictive. And I run a label trying to market people's music and make it do as well as possible. And so I understand the power of language to communicate that to people. I'm also a writer who uses words and um, I'm quite into the idea of making up genre names as well, which artists hate. They hate that. But I suppose when, you know, working with artists, I always say to them, you can hate labels all you want, but if you don't name your music, someone else is going to name it and then you'll be fucking pissed off. So take responsibility for your music and realize that's what's going to happen if you don't come up with the words to describe it. Um, so hyper, when, when we came up with the name Hyperdub, it was an attempt to, to have an umbrella term for, um, for a whole, you know, a whole tradition of, um, black originating electronic music that, um, transcended country and time. You know, so it wasn't just jazz or funk or hip hop or techno or jungle or reggae or dub, but it was all of these things. And so it was, you know, supposed to be music that was somehow following in that tradition. It was, the word hyperdub was also a way I would, a word, a phrase I kind of was using to talk about what jungle was in the 90s, because jungle was in a way my musical epiphany. Um, so that kind of combination of like bass acceler that accelerated bass lines, um, or that combination of very fast music and very slow dubby music. Um, so it's never I've never really thought of it as a genre as such. It's very open, you know. If anything, it's an anti-genre. It's like very per permeable around the edges. Um, I think you could probably, you know, when we were a dubstep label from like 2004 to 2008 or nine, I mean, even even the first release on the label was like a bit weird for dubstep. It had no beats and it was like a spoken word version of Prince's Son of the Times. It's not, it wasn't like a peak dubstep banger. Um, so we never... It never really worked as a, you know, we never were contained by that genre. And, you know, by the time I started to get a bit bored of that genre and we're working with musicians doing all different kinds of things from Chicago footwork to artists like Laurel Halo or Hype Williams, Dean Blunt, Inga Copeland, um, the South African star, you know, there's really no, I don't know what the common thread was apart from somehow my years liking it all um i you know I, I used to think oh it's all very you know it's all got a sub bass undertow but then last year we um released this album by japanese producer foodman that literally had no bass in it at all so um i think i see it more like a, a, a um a river with lots of tributaries and there's lots of threads that run through the label. There's a video game music thread, which in a way, you know, connects 80s Japanese music to early grime, to stuff I'm doing in different ways. There's a, there's a kind of dub thread, which go, runs from the dubstep stuff right into, um, Dean Blunt and Baby Father type things. There's um, there's there's some kind of weird techno thread that runs through like Flossed and Paradigm and some of Laurel Halo stuff. And there's an African dance music thread which runs through the UK funky stuff and the more I'm a piano and gom influence stuff from recently. It's, it's a mess basically. You can find there's patterns in that mess, but I'll leave that to your profession to find a balance. It's a beautiful mess. Um, I think we've heard quite enough of my voice. Um, 
should we take a few questions? I do have loads more questions um, if needed, but if any of you have any questions you'd like to ask. Tell us a bit more about Bloodline, this label. It was the first uh, audio essay before uh, Astrotarian, right? Yeah, so Flatlines. I studied in the 90s with a, a writer called Mark Fisher, who's become very popular after his death. Um, we were both doing PhDs at the same time at University of Warwick. And his PhD thesis was actually called Flatlines, Flatline Constructs, which I think was taken from the film Flatlines, which is about people, as far as I remember, like people dying and being resuscitated and flatline is like the heart, the, the flat heartbeat. Um, so I... In the CCRU, which was the, where we were studying, but also since then, as a way of trying to bridge these two sides of what I do, the, the kind of more theoretical side of things and the musical side of things, I've been interested in this kind of weird genre called the audio essay, or sort of, like I said earlier, sonic fiction or docu documentary fiction in, in sound. Um, in other words, spoken word over kind of ambient or drony, drony, beatless music in particular. And um, Mark made some amazing audio essay pieces, one called London Under London, um, and then there was a more recent one called On Vanishing Land. And after he died in 2017, um, we wanted to find a, a, the right context for releasing On Vanishing Land, which was about a walk along the southeast coast of England, um, a, a, a physical walk, but also a kind of psychogeographical walk. Um, so uh, audio essay is kind of a format which brings together theory and fiction and history and documentary f and samples and music and you know it's a real like synth synthetic genre in a way um so yeah the first release was on vanishing land and i think when i started the label i had astro darian in mind it's just taken me quite a long time to put it together and i suppose in my head at flatlines is focusing on the peripheries of the UK or like where the um is trying to think through some of the 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 problems of what the UK is just now. So so Mark and Justin's On Vanishing Land is about a walk along the southeast coast and ultimately Astrodarian is about a road trip along the north coast of Scotland, like two opposite extremes of the country. Um and we don't have, I don't have big plans for the label. You know, it's really um, a kind of in-house project of just um, we'll release stuff when we come to it because it's not it's it's really a niche of a niche. It's really not a very commercially viable format. Spoken word on weird soundscapes, um, but it's for me it's interesting because, like I said at the beginning, it allows me to bring together all these different strands of my interests. Anyone else? Anything? Yeah? How did you find your Rashad? How did you find DJ Rashad's music? Um, I think like a lot of people, I, my, my one of my main introductions to footwork was the Planet Moo compilations, Bangs and Works. And I was also aware of um, this artist called Philip D. Kick, who was doing jungle footwork, like making footwork versions of old, my favorite old jungle tracks from the early 90s. Um, because in that period, I was still very, my musical radar was still very focused on the UK. Um, and so that, those compilations turned me on to this music. And then 
then I started playing more of it in my sets and maybe about 2012 we invited Rashad and Spin to play a hybrid up night in London and they completely surprised me because they asked me if they could release some music on Hyperdub. And at the same time, Mike Paradinas that runs Planet Moo was like nagging me. He was like, you're playing this music. Please release it as well because everyone thinks I'm insane because I'm the only one releasing it. So, so it just happened like that, you know. Um, we did a few couple of EPs and we did Double Cup in 2014 and we became close friends and toured together. We, we toured in Japan in 2014 and we toured around the States together. Um, and I haven't, I suppose I haven't recovered really. Like I'm still, it's, I still don't, I still enjoy DJing that kind of music more than anything. Really, and it reminds me of the the buzz I used to get from playing Jungle in the nineties because of the speed aspect of it. Although it's very different kind of music, um, but I think also what it has in common with Jungle is that it's it's a, it's it's music that pushes forward, but also regurgitates the past. And I was just saying to to you before I took ecstasy for the first time in the early nineties in a club not in a house or techno or a rave club, but in a club that was playing like Parliament, Funkadelic, Herbie Hancock, um, psychedelic jazz and so on. And so when I first heard Jungle, it was sampling all of that kind of music. And when I first heard Footwork, it was sampling all that kind of music as well. So the, you know, that was a very profound musical epiphany for me when I took Ecstasy for the first time. And and it takes decades to process the amount of information you get from an epiphany experience like that. So I'm still processing it. But this music just gives me flashbacks in a way. Thank you. Any, anyone else? Uh, yeah? I'm just going to repeat it because I'm recording everything. How did you, through which sources did you start listening to music, basically? Well, you know, I was a teenager in the 80s, so it was tapes, even more so than records, it was tapes. I used to, I think, I used to go to the local library and just take out records and tape them all. And that's how I started building a music collection, just making tapes and like drawing my own imitations of the covers. Um, so I built a big tape collection in the 80s. And then after my musical epiphany, I start. I bought turntables the next day and start buying records. Um, How are you doing? Are you getting on? Good time for. Okay. Um, how do you feel about the new jungle? Um, well, I didn't really know much about it to be honest. But last week, I did a back-to-back -back with Sherelle. And on Friday night and on Saturday night, I did a back-to-back -back with Tim Reaper, both of who are playing in Barcelona tomorrow night. Um, and so just following them over the last year, couple of years, it's introduced me to a lot of the new stuff. And I'm glad, I, what I'd say is I'm glad we've moved, a, well, I'm glad some people have moved away from drum and bass towards jungle again, because... You know, I, I was a huge jungle and drum and bass fan in the 90s until about 98 or 99, where I just felt like everything I was buying was a very... I already had all the music I was kept buying. I'd heard it. Same happened in dubstep 10 years later for me. Um, so I'm really... I was really happy to hear young DJs who were influenced from what I thought was the good period in the 90s so Tim's label Future Retro is definitely coming from a similar place just in between Jungle and Drum and Bass um, and also both of those have got that kind of 4-4 influence in their music where this kind of great period where it was 4-4 and breakbeats in the same tracks but fast, you know, still fast, still 160 BPM. So I'm, 
I'm all in favor of that. Um, I still don't think it's as good as the old stuff, but that's just, you know, I have to be careful of that old man kind of thing of like, oh, it was better at the end. But um, so I, to answer your question, I, I've only learned about the new stuff recently because I wasn't really watching it. Um, but a lot, I'm impressed by quite a lot of it. I don't know if it's doing anything so new. Um, but that period from like 93 to 95 or 96, for me, was so far ahead of everything else that I'm not sure what going beyond that would be anyway without becoming like square pusher or like completely insane version of that, which I was never really so interested in. Um, so yeah, I would go and see Sherelle and Tim Reaper tomorrow night.